Our text this morning is Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 33. This is what God's Word says to us this morning. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are all members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Father, your scriptures don't cease to be true because the culture changes. And yet we have to take into account the fact that the culture has radically changed on these issues and that your people are impacted by the culture. And they are tempted by some of the ideas and even uh, go beyond temptation and simply accept them. And um, this puts us in a very awkward position. But your truth is still your truth, and your way is the way of life and peace. And I truly believe that men and women who carefully obey the scriptures will have a blessed and a happy marriage. So we ask, O oh Lord, that you would convince us of these things in our hearts. It's in Jesus' name that we ask it. Amen. Well, I, I learned a new term uh, from psychology and from the counseling world this week. Um, it's called normal marital hatred. This is, what, this is what psychologists are talking about now, normal marital hatred. And they interviewed one psychologist who gives a lot of presentations on this, and he says, you know, I've been all over the country, I've been talking about this for 10 years, and I've never had somebody come up to me afterwards and go, I don't know what that is, can you explain that to me? And so we find that, uh, that things are, are uh, perhaps far worse between husbands and wives than we ever dreamed. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, most of us in this room have felt this way at one point in time or another about our spouses. And we aren't liable to tell ourselves the truth about what it is that we're feeling, but what we're feeling in those moments is a real anger, and a real contempt for the other person. And that is accurately called hatred. And it's usually accompanied by a will to harm them in some way, uh, which you may or may not successfully resist. You might find that uh, you suddenly accidentally break their stuff or lose their stuff or don't show up when you're supposed to show up or don't keep some commitment and then go, Oops, and that's an expression of what's really going on in your heart. 
Now, if you ever come to me for counseling, you will find that I start with two main things that I think are very, very important. And the first thing is that we're going to call things by their right names. So, for instance, I have people come to me and their, their childhood is a childhood of rather profound abuse. And they'll talk about these horrible things that were done to them by their father or their mother. And then they'll say, yeah, but dad does really love me. And it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Nobody that loves another person does that to another person, all right? And love means something. And, and part of the reason that I do that is because you can get gaslit into thinking, well, love includes doing those horrible things to people and not really thinking that there's a problem there. And there is a problem there. We need to be honest about what's happened to us and what's going on. And, and the second thing that I always tell people is that uh, one of the things that we're going to do early on is arrive at the truth of what you actually think, what you actually feel, and what you actually want, and so that we can understand where we're starting from, so that we can understand where we need to go. And, and, and I say that because there's a lot of people that come in and they tell me what they think they should want as though they actually want it, or what they think they should think as though they actually think it. And it's not true, and we can't get to the bottom of things until we disabuse them of that notion and say, no, this is what you actually want. This is what you actually think. This is what you actually value. Now let's deal with those things as they actually are. Well, normal marital hatred, friends, is one of those places where secular psychology is actually calling things by their right names. That's what husbands and wives are feeling for each other. Wives are feeling this for their husbands. And husbands are feeling this for their wives. Now, we expect this for people who don't know Christ. The worldlings are far from God. The Scripture tells us that if you don't have Christ as the center of your life, if you haven't been born again, that you are without hope and without God in the world. And so we shouldn't be surprised that so many marriages are so bad and so painful. But for us, whom God has saved and who he is in the process of making new, these things don't have to be. We should have compassion on the people who are trapped in these situations. We should help them wherever we can, but we should not imitate them. Because we have the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit who is within us and who will cause us to walk in a different way if we understand what that means and actually decide to do it. If we intend to walk differently, God will not automatically make you walk in a different way. But you have the option. You have the possibility where you didn't have it before. Let me just tell you something that may be a surprise to you. Marriage is not supposed to be agony. It absolutely is not supposed to be agony. It's supposed to be one of God's good gifts to mankind. And for a marriage to really work as God intended it to work and to be the source of deep happiness that God intended, it has to be conducted. It has to be lived out as God designed it. You go buy a brand new car and decide, I don't feel like putting gasoline in the tank. Uh, I'm going to put uh, Diet 7-Up in the tank. That's what I want to run my car on. Well, you're not going to have your car for very long. You, so you have no right to complain when the car doesn't work. Well, it's the same way with your marriage. God said a marriage is supposed to work this way. And you need to put in the tank what belongs in the tank. 
and then things will be a lot better. You cannot have a good, a fulfilling, a godly marriage if you are going to run it on the devil's principles that we have inherited from this wicked culture. And part of the reason that I have gone through this passage so painfully slowly is to identify all of the devil's principles that most Christians just accept and think are right because we take our cues from the world and because of our fallen sinful natures and how they find these principles to be attractive because some of these principles feed our egos. And Satan designed them to feed our egos. Otherwise, they wouldn't be so easily adopted. We wouldn't be so easily fooled. If, if what the devil was offering was not appetizing, we would never take it. And so the devil specializes in things that seem appetizing at first, but are deeply unhealthy when you consume them. The devil is the original McDonald's. Oh boy, those fries look good. And then afterwards you're like, oh, why did I do that to myself? That's how the devil works. That's how he does things. Now, uh, as I said a number of weeks ago, you are going to have to decide what you believe and who you trust on these issues. Either the cultural consensus, as it has been shaped by people like Gloria Steinem and Camille Paglia and others like them, who are very clear that they are out to destroy the nuclear family. They're crystal clear about it. It's an oppressive structure that needs to be swept away, and we need to find different ways of living together as human beings. They want to do away with it. We need to find different ways of raising children or not raising them as the case may be. They're very clear about that. And, and the, their ideas are all designed to put that into practice. And if we accept those ideas while we're trying to have marriages, while we're trying to raise children, we're gonna find ourselves very confused and in a very destructive situation. So you gotta decide, do you believe them or do you believe the word of God? You can either say, I'm going to be a husband the way the world tells me to be a husband, or you can say, I'm going to be a, a, a husband the way Christ tells me to be a husband. Either you can say, I'm going to be a wife the way the world tells me to be a wife, or you will say, I'm going to be a wife the way Christ tells me to be a wife. You have to choose. But here's the thing. Once you've chosen, you have to live with the consequences of your choice. If you choose to jump off of a 10-story building... You can choose to do that, but what you can't choose is not to splat on the sidewalk a few seconds later. That's just not, you, you've made a decision and now you have to accept the outcome. You have to accept the consequences. It's the same way with your choices on these issues. Either, as, as it says in the Old Testament, two ways are set before you, the way of death and the way of life. And God says, choose life. And human beings are like, I don't know. Death looks kind of fun. Death looks like it would honor me and make me more independent and empowered and healthier and happier, richer, all these other things. Okay, choose death. But then don't cry when you've made a mess of things. What I'm telling you is that Christ is intimate, uh, uh, knows you intimately rather, and has the best information available on how to live your life in the healthiest happiest, most peaceful, most life-giving way, and you can trust him. And he invites you to place your confidence in him on these matters. It's an open invitation. So today we're going to talk about how Christ calls the man to act when he becomes a husband. <laughs> 
Now, recall that we talked last, uh, what we talked about last week, that modern psychology has finally caught up with what the scripture has been saying for over 2,000 years, and modern psychology has discovered that men and women both need love and respect, but there's a different emphasis between men and women. Women need to be treated with an emphasis on love. They need to be loved, and they want to be loved. It's more important for them if they were forced to choose. Most women will choose to be loved rather than to be respected as their primary thing. Men, however, are just the opposite. If you force a man to choose, would you rather be respected but not loved or loved and not respected? He'll say, most of the time, most men will say, I would rather be respected and not loved if you, if you force me to choose. Now, once again, we both need both, and there are outliers and people are different, and I know all this, but the scriptures say what the scriptures say. And, and because of our inheritance of the sinful nature, which is passed down from our first parents, what we find is that men are not inclined to treat their wives with the love that they need, and women are not inclined to treat their husbands with the respect that they need. And so each one, as a consequence, thinks that the other person in this relationship is radically selfish and probably evil and is being intentionally hurtful. And often over time, these resentments build up and you get what the psychologists talk about as normal marital hatred. But you see, it doesn't have to be this way. And if it's this way for you now, it doesn't have to continue to be this way. Because Jesus Christ reverses the curse that we are under as husbands and wives who are the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve. Christ, when he saves you, implants his Holy Spirit in your life so that you can begin to live in another way. And then he says, now, each of you give the other what they need and do it for me. You might be sitting there saying, I'm not going to give her what she needs. I'm so mad at her, I can't see straight. I feel so massively disrespected for so long. I've got no goodwill for her whatsoever. And if I reach out to her and start making overtures towards her and doing what she wants me to do, then she wins. And Christ says, don't do it for her. Do it for me. And the wife says, I'm not going to give him the respect he thinks he needs. He doesn't deserve it. He hasn't earned it. I, I'm so alienated by, by how he's treated me that I'm not going to do a thing for him. He has to go first. I won't go first. And Christ says, don't do it for him. Do it for me. So husbands, love your wives. Husbands, love your wives. Let's start with some terms here. C.S. Lewis has a wonderful little book called The Four Loves. It's not very long, and it is very, very helpful. I highly recommend it. You could read it very easily in an afternoon. Now, in English, we only have one word to describe love, just, just the word love. And so we have to use that one word, love, to talk about all the different ways that we feel when we use that word love. We have to say, I love chocolate ice cream, or I love Mexican food. And we also say, and I love my children. 
Now, hopefully, you do not love your children in the same way that you love Mexican food, right? Because that would make you a cannibal, and that's bad, right? We don't love our best friend in the same way that we love our spouse. Once again, hopefully. Well, the, the ancient Greeks had a much more subtle and a much more nuanced and a much more precise language. And ancient Greek, says C.S. Lewis, had four different words for love. And I'm just going to go through them really quickly here. The first Greek word is storge. The second one is philia. The third one is eros. And the fourth one is agape. Now, what, is, what are those things? Well, storge is affection. It's affection. It's, the, it's what, uh, what the, the kind of love that a parent has for their offspring. It's the kind of love a child has for a kindly next-door neighbor. It's the kind of love that cats and dogs who are raised together have for each other. And affection is a wonderful gift of God. C.S. Lewis says, affection is responsible for nine-tenths of whatever solid and durable happiness there is in our natural life. So that's a, that's a pretty big deal, affection, that's storge. The second one is philia, which Lewis calls the love of friendship. Two people who develop a love for each other because they're interested in the same thing or they see the same truth. So you ladies who get together around a craft because you love the craft, whether it's scrapbooking or knitting or whatever, and the primary attraction to being together is that you both enjoy the same thing in the same way. Two guys who are out on the fishing boat or in the hunting blind together because they both enjoy fishing or hunting. That is the basis of friendship, says Lewis. The third one is eros, which is where we get our word erotic, and that's romantic or sexual love between the two sexes. And so those three, says Lewis, he calls the natural loves. In other words, they're part of our biology. They're part of our humanness. They're not explicitly or, or, or specifically Christian. You, you have those kind of things happening in Chinese culture and in India and, and in all the different places where you have all these different kinds of people with all these different kinds of ideas. Those are the natural loves. And he says there are a couple of things that you need to know about the natural loves. First of all, they can go bad, and they can turn destructive when they go bad. And they can go bad in a number of ways, and Lewis talks about that in his book. He says they can become demonic, is the way he says it. Second of all, they can be damaged, or they can be destroyed by our behavior. So, for instance, Lewis says, the one ironclad law of the natural loves is be lovable. If you're not lovable, you won't be loved with natural love. So you can destroy them. And this is what happens in a marriage that is run on eros and, and is run on storge and is run on philia is somebody or both of you don't behave in a way that's lovable to the other person and it just shreds those natural loves. And you're like, I'm done. I don't love her anymore. I don't love him anymore. I don't know what I ever saw in them but I'm over it now, whatever it was. Those are the natural loves, and they can be destroyed. There's a fourth kind of love. This is not a natural love. It's agape 
It's a supernatural love. It's a spiritual love. It's the kind of love that God has for his people. And we are not capable of agape on our own. God has to give it to us so that we can turn around and give it to others. And this is precisely what he does. Romans 5.5, God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So we get this from God and we get it in abundance if we stay connected to God and abide in Jesus. And then we are able in turn to give it to other people. Now, what is agape? Well, agape can be best defined as a sincere and steady desire for another person's well-being as God defines their well-being and a willingness to do whatever is in your power to accomplish that well-being. Let me say that again. Agape love is a sincere and steady desire for another person's well-being. And God is the one who gets to say what that is. God is the one who defines that well-being. And then we have a willingness to do whatever is in our power to accomplish that well-being. And it may not be that there's a lot in your power to do, except maybe pray for them and be kind to them. Or it may be that there's a great deal within your power, but it would be a great deal of trouble and it would be very costly. And real love says, I'm not worried about the trouble and I'm not worried about the cost. That's what love, agape love is. And that, friends, is the kind of love that God is calling husbands to have for their wives in this passage of Scripture. God is calling husbands to agape our wives. It's good to have affection for your wife. It's good to have friendship with your wife. It's good to feel erotic love for your wife. But that is not sufficient to have the kind of marriage that speaks to the watching world about Christ's plan to bring about lives that look like Eden looked before the fall and to testify about God's goodness, Christ's goodness to his church. So you must go to God as a husband and say, God, I am clearly not capable of doing what needs to be done. I need your help. I need you to shed your love abroad in my heart by the Holy Spirit, and I need you to do it over and over and over again. Once is not enough. I have to keep coming back and getting fresh supplies of love to give away over and over and over again. Now, men, pay attention. When God tells you to love your wife as Christ loves the church, he is telling you to desire God's best for her in a steady, unrelenting way and to do whatever you can to bring about God's best for her. Now, guys, before we talk about what that does mean, let's just be really clear about what that does not mean. That does not mean your job is to give her whatever she wants. It doesn't. It means to give her everything God wants. And not infrequently, those are not the same thing. Because your wife is a fallen sinful nature, just like you do. 
And sometimes she wants things that she ought not want and is not aware that she ought not want them or that they're a problem, or she is aware and doesn't care. And it's your job to know the difference. This means you, as a husband, have to be in constant prayerful communion with God, and you have to be constantly learning His Word. You have to. You have to know the Bible inside and out. And you have to know it so well that you're going to react more or less automatically in the way that the Scriptures teach. This means that this is your very first opportunity right here to exercise headship and leadership and courage is to simply get in your Bible and learn what it means and come to the classes that are offered to teach you what it means and learn the theology that helps explain what it means to you and how it's lived out in your life so that you can begin to exercise headship and leadership and courage and to be able to know when you should say no when she wants something that's not good or that's not godly. This is, you, you, you say to yourself, this is not the direction that God is calling us as a family. It's to be able to say to her, I'm sorry, dear. I've heard you. I understand your concerns. And I've thought and I've prayed and I've studied about the issues that you've raised very carefully. But I believe that God is calling us in another direction. So prayer and scripture study and learning to discern the voice of God, men, for you is indispensable on the, on the job training for your job of loving your wife as Christ loves the church and of being the spiritual head of your home. Now, remember something I said back when we were looking at Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3. I said that God made the man to fulfill the task which God gave him, which was in Adam's case, keep the garden and subdue the creation and rule it. But he wasn't adequate to his task by himself, so he made the woman to help the man with his God-given task. So if you can picture it, the man stands looking at his task and beyond his task at God. And the woman stands looking to her husband and beyond her husband to God. Now, that's obviously not everything that they had to do with their time, but that is the basic orientation of their lives and that orientation of life which God designed us for and which enables us to work best. And how did our first parents mess that up? Well, Satan comes to Eve, right? And he proposes a new project without really uh, alerting her to what he's doing. He does a little bit of sleight of hand. And, and he says, hey, I've got a new project for you, Eve. It's called Forbidden Fruit Harvesting. And she takes her eyes off of God and off of her husband, and she pursues this ego-enhancing task. I will be like God, she thinks to herself. I don't have to trust God anymore. I don't have to rely on my husband for anything anymore. I can get what I want, how and when I want it. So all of a sudden, she's focused on something that's not him and God. And Adam, who's standing right there watching, listening as the servant speaks with Eve, was not deceived, says the text of Scripture. He knew that Eve was doing that which God had said not to do. And then when she ate, he realized that he had lost her, and he ate too because he thought it better to die with her 
than to live without her. So why did he do that? Well, he did that fundamentally because he had put her in the place of God in his life. She had become the most important thing in his life. Martin Luther said, your God is that which is more important, is most important to you. I don't care what you say, look at what you do. Whatever is most important to you, whatever you spend your time, your attention, your money on, that's, that's your God. All right. You say what you want, but when you look at how you orient your life, that tells who your God is. Your God might be peewee football or baseball or anything else. Like, I can neglect the Lord, I can neglect his worship, I can neglect the church, because the most important thing is that my kid play basketball on Sunday morning during the season. Like, well, that's your God, then. I'm just saying. The hat fits, put it on your head, Okay. So Adam looks at her, and Adam says, she is the best thing God has ever made. Do you remember uh, the whole, it's like, I'm going to bring you the animals, and you're going to see that there's no one that's, that's corresponding to you, no one that's a helper for you, no one that's a companion for you. The animals are wonderful in their place, but nobody else can do this. And then, and then he puts Adam to sleep, and he makes Eve, and he wakes Adam up, and he brings Eve to Adam, and what does he say? At last, at last, this is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. I'm not alone anymore. God made her for me, and he made me for her. Eve, you complete me. And oh, how he delighted in her. And he wanted to give her whatever she wanted because of his great love for her. But somewhere along the way, his delight in her eclipsed his delight in his creator. And when she wanted what was wrong, Adam was powerless to say no. He lost that fundamental God-ordained orientation. Adam was supposed to be focused on God and God's task. Eve was supposed to be focused on Adam and God beyond her. Now Eve is focused on something else that's not Adam and it's not God, and he is focused on her. And God is nowhere in the picture for either of them. And Eve is focused on what she wants, and God isn't in the picture for her, and Adam is focused on Eve and helping her get what she wants. Do you see how Satan has flipped the rules? and the roles in order to cause chaos. And what did God say when he cursed Adam for his disobedience? He said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the fruit, curse it, curse it. You know, I, um, I'm going to be a little autobiographical here. I've been cautioned that perhaps I'm doing this too much, so I'm going to be sensitive to that and not do that anymore for a while after this week, but there was a time when my wife and I were both young and, and uh, immature in the Lord. We hadn't been taught these things. We didn't understand them yet. We still thought like the worldlings, even though we were Christians. And uh, I had just graduated from seminary, and I was looking for a church. We were living in Evansville, Indiana at that particular point in time. And there was this church in a cornfield outside of a little town called Allendale, Illinois. It was only about an hour and a half 
from Evansville, and I really liked them. They were a Bible-believing, conservative Presbyterian church. Um, they, they were just, they had a neat history. They had, you know, just neat things going on, and I really liked them. And um, I wanted to go, and I felt like God was calling me to go there. My wife, for her own reasons, um, didn't want to go. It wasn't that there was anything wrong with the church or anything like that. There were just other reasons that were important to her, and she did not want to go to Allendale, Illinois. And I'll tell you how much she didn't want to go to Allendale, Illinois. Uh, during that time, uh, she had a little bit of surgery, you know, one of those kind of surgeries where they put you under and it takes about 45 minutes, but they have to put you under for it, and then they wake you up and they send you on your way in an hour or two. And so I went with her to have the surgery, and I sat in the waiting room, and the doctor comes out. And you know how when you're under anesthesia, you talk? Well, the doctor comes out and says, the uh, surgery went fine, uh, your wife's in recovery, and she really doesn't want to go to Allendale, Illinois. And I was like, wow, that's deep. But I thought God was calling me there. And so I hemmed and I hawed in our conversations with, together with the church until at last they looked at me and said, you know, you're just a little unstable and weird, and I don't think we're interested in you anymore. And I lost the opportunity to go to Allendale, Illinois. And all I could do was hear the text of Scripture from Genesis 3. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, cursing, cursing. And I began to realize that I, for whatever reason, had her in a higher place in my life than God was. And, and I started to realize that, that my main deficiency in my life, in my spiritual walk, was how much I loved God. That if you, what you love the most, you will naturally gravitate to. And I realized I don't love God like I should. And I realized every temptation to sin really is the question, who do you love more? And so I actually, you know, back in the days when Windows, you could put the, the banner, you know, whatever text you wanted on your screensaver. And I, and I put the, the banner on my computer, on my laptop. And, it's, and it was just the question, who do you love? So that every time the computer went to screensaver, I was faced with that question. Who do you love? And the answer was supposed to be God. And she snuck into my office and she changed it. And it said, who do you love? Laura. And I thought, that is prophetic right there. I need to love God more than I love her or I can't love her appropriately. And it will mess up our lives and I will lack in leadership. Women. Your husband loves you. He still wants to give you whatever you want. His temptation is still idolatry. And you can exploit that to his harm and to your harm if you want. You know, I've gotten to watch a number of little girls um, start learning how to ride horses and you know, at first maybe they're a little bit scared, but then they climb up on that horse and they sit there and they ride it for a little bit and they, they realize, hey, this big dumb beast will do whatever I tell it to. And then they meet a guy a few years later and they, they say, hey, this big dumb beast will do whatever I tell it to do. And they never quite get over it. Men, God must be first. 
The nature of idolatry is egocentric. People worship idols because they believe that if they do, the idol will give them what they want. They worship false gods because they're trying to get something back from the false god. And they say, if I just figure out what the false god wants, then the false god will give me what I want in return. And the idol worshiper gets very angry when his sacrifices don't win him what he wants from the false god, and often he goes on a journey to find a new false god that he hopes will perform better. Idolizing your wife is no more loving or giving than idolizing a false god. Many of you are angry at your wives because you're not relating to your wife as God has commanded. You're acting like Adam and your eyes are fixed on her and your whole orientation in life is towards her, not because of great love, but because you think if I just push the right buttons and give her the right inputs, she'll give me what I want. And so you sit there and you're like, does she like me today? Oh, she smiled. All is well. I'm okay. I'm a worthy person. Oh, there's that look. I know that look. Something's wrong. I have to figure out what it is, and I need to fix it so that she'll like me again. Honey, what's wrong? Nothing. Oh, no, she won't tell me what's wrong. I've got to figure out all the things that are wrong and try and fix them. And, and it's, a, it's a place of weakness. It's a place of frustration. And it's no wonder that your wife then doesn't respect you. If your eyes are fixed on God and on what he wants, you will do right by your wife and your wife will have no real cause for complaint and you will do it appropriately from a posture of strength and a posture of leadership. So take your eyes off your wife and put them on God and the things that God wants you to do and everything will start to work its way out on its own. And what does God say that he wants you to do in his word? What is one of your core tasks? Well, it's to turn right around and look at your wife, but in an appropriate way. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Idolatry to your wife is not love. It is your attempt to use her to gratify your egocentric project of living your own life without proper reference to God. Now, our time is gone for today. Next week, if the Lord spares us, we will go into the nuts and the bolts of exactly how Christ loves his church, and then we will apply that pattern to husbands loving their wives.